I'm Susan Branscombe, and this is Leading She. One thing that for me resonated because I had had a lot of experience as a nurse, even though I didn't know exactly what type of um, position I would eventually end up with, I knew I needed to get other experiences. And so many places I interviewed said, oh, you've got all this great nursing, we'll make you the head of nursing eventually. Um, When I interviewed with Rush Jordan, he was the only person who said to me, you've had great nursing experience, but we need to round you out as an executive. So you need to do some other things. And I knew right then I found what I've been looking for. Mary Buzalis is president and CEO of Premier Health, the largest healthcare system in Southwest Ohio, which employs more than 15,000 employees and physicians. Mary has been through several big crises in the community, including the pandemic and the Dayton, Ohio shootings in August, 2019. She has found that often women are the ones in a crisis who are most solution oriented. Her experience with President Trump during his visit to Dayton after the shootings was similar to that which many women experience. Mary found that she had to assert herself to gain his acknowledgement that she was the head of the organization. A powerful leader, Mary always shows resiliency, creativity, and collaboration as she deals with issues and crises head on and enjoys a wonderful reputation. Enjoy listening to this podcast with Mary Buzalis. On Leading She Today, my guest is Mary Buzalis. Mary is president and CEO of Premier Health, based in Dayton. I want to talk a little about Mary's background and her career. Uh, Premier Health is the largest healthcare system in Southwest Ohio and offers a wide variety of healthcare services. There are five hospital locations, including Miami Valley Hospital, and 100 sites of service, including primary care and specialty care, home health care, and nine urgent care centers. The health system has close to 3,000 physicians on staff and more than 13,000 employees. And only 13% of hospital system CEOs are women in the country. Um, Mary has some recognitions and awards. In 2019, Modern Healthcare recognized Mary as being one of the top 25 women leaders in healthcare in the country. In 2020, Modern Healthcare named Mary to the national list of 50 most influential clinical executives. She is on the board of University of Dayton and the first female president of the board. Uh, Mary joined Miami Valley, now Premier Health, in 1986, almost 35 years ago. Uh, She became president and CEO of Miami Valley Hospital in January 2006 and chief operating officer of the hospital network Premier in 2011. She has led many innovative and strategic growth initiatives, resulting in many positive changes on how health care is provided to the region, including the development of a heart and vascular tower improving neighborhoods. She has a degree in nursing, magna cum laude, from California State University at Fresno, and a master's degree in health services administration, magna cum laude, from Arizona State University. And she was born in Denver and raised in the small farming community of Porterville, California. So welcome, Mary. Thank you, Susan. You you seem to know a lot about me. (laughs) (laughs) Hours of research, hours of research. So pulled it all together. But um, 
Yeah, you work at, uh, you came in to Dayton. Uh, I want to talk about your move here uh, from California and your decision to do that, uh, move across country. But you began working for Miami Valley Hospital, which is affectionately known in the area as the Valley. Everybody in Dayton just about calls it the Valley. I am from the Dayton area, grew up near Dayton. My husband and I lived in South Dayton for years, Washington Township. Um, I was born at Miami Valley Hospital in 1958, and uh, my kids were born there in 86 and 92, so we all know the Valley, we all know Miami Valley, and I don't call it Premier, I still call it Miami Valley, uh, but it is one of the best hospitals, you know, in the state, in the region, for sure. So I want to have you talked about your career, but I wanted to mention how we got introduced. Uh, Ed Blake, who was a client of mine uh, Dayton in Dayton, uh, he's the CEO of Coleman Services, made the introduction. I asked Ed, um, you know, give me, you know, some of your top women in Dayton, uh, for this podcast. I told him about the podcast and he said, you have to talk to Mary Buzalis. He, I don't think he gave me anybody else. <laughs> he may have to tap into, but he says, you got to talk to Mary. He said, Mary is a key leader in the Dayton market and surrounding areas. She is highly respected and well thought of. She has been a big advocate for Premier Miami Valley Hospital and providing a disproportionate share of the uncompensated care in our community. She is a leader in promoting opportunities for women and minorities. So, again, welcome. Thanks for being here. And, uh, you know, talk about your career. Talk about, you know, we want to talk about where you grew up and, uh, you know, how you, how you ended up in uh, out west. Well, thank you, Susan. It's a tremendous opportunity, and I appreciate what you're doing uh, for women, and I hope this is helpful. I grew up in California. I still have a lot of family there, and I'm glad you mentioned a small farming town because um, it was really central, and all my friends were rat ranchers and agriculturally mm. focused. I grew up on state hospital grounds, which is kind of unusual. And I think why that's relevant is I had exposure very early um, to developmentally disabled. Mm -hmm. And I still have a very soft spot for that population. And um, just, it was a way of life for me and an exposure that maybe not everyone has. And I think it influenced me to lean towards healthcare. That and my father was a physician, he was a surgeon. Mm -hmm. But both of my parents, my dad was Minnesota, University of Minnesota, and my mom um, stayed home, had five children. I'm, I'm the only girl, um, but she was from Iowa. So maybe we had some Midwestern roots in there. Um, I came out here to do a postgraduate fellowship. I had done some research and be happy to talk about that, but I was gonna come for two years and go back to California. And here I am. 36 years later. Right. Who, yeah. who knew? Yeah. So I consider myself a Daytonian um, yes. now. Yeah. It had to be quite, quite a, I don't want to say culture shock, but, but very different. I mean, Dayton, you know, I'm from that area. I went to school at Wright State University. I mean, my family's from, from that area. My husband's from that area. It had to be quite a shift and a transition and adjustment to come to a smaller Midwestern city, right? From California. Yes, it was a major change. The weather was, uh, I interviewed in May, and I really didn't think about the weather. I was thinking about the opportunity. 
So the first time there was a dusting of snow, I called one of the ladies I worked with and said, are, do, are we supposed to stay home today? <laughs> <laughs> and showed up with a scarf, a hat, and nobody else had that on. So right. yeah. um, I'm still adjusting to the weather. Yeah. And um, you have to go somewhere in the winter to get a little sunshine, I think, to survive. Yeah. But other than that, it took me longer to make friends because to your point, many people in Dayton are multi-generational and it's not that they're unfriendly. Um, it's just they have a lot of friends and family. So it takes a minute mm -hmm. to integrate. I, I agree with that. I, th I can see that in Dayton. Uh, I actually found it to be more inclusive. Maybe it was because I was from that area than Cincinnati was when I first moved to Cincinnati because Cincinnati can be that way people already have their established friendships and contacts and um it's not as inclusive as say some of the more transient uh markets are i would say i think that's perhaps true i didn't live in cincinnati but you know we have the base and actually we have a lot of residents or doctors come from the base uh and you know they they're from many areas mm -hmm. i think that may be a factor since it's such a large Air Force Base. Sure, yeah. Your bachelor's degree is in nursing, and yet you decided to go back to get a degree at Arizona State in hospital administration. And uh, you had said, once a nurse, always a nurse, but you decided uh, administration was where you were more passionate. Talk about that. I um, worked for about 10 years at a, as a critical care nurse. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And it uh, still guides a lot of my thought process today. But after about 10 years, I just personally was getting restless. So I went to Arizona State. Uh, that was quite purposeful because their healthcare administration degree was in the School of Business. And I had this idea that um, if I had a clinical undergraduate and a business master's, that would make me more unique than someone who is clinical, clinical, or business, business. And I have found throughout my career in working with clinicians that um, making them aware that I haven't, uh, and I actually worked as a nurse, I think that gives you some modicum of credibility, which is very helpful. Yes, I agree with that. Debbie Hayes, who I interviewed with Christ Hospital, has a very similar position to you at at Christ uh, in that you, she heads the network and she's a nurse by training. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, she says the same thing that you get a certain amount of, you have the experience and you have the credibility. She went back to school to get a more business administration focus. Uh, so yeah, she, she finds that, to, that combination and others find it the combination to, to really add credibility. And I think on the reverse, because obviously in these positions you have a board um, and a lot of people forget in a not-for-profit, you still have to run it as a business. Um, you know, the saying, no money, no mission is very true. So I think the business degree helped me as I interviewed here um, with board members who mm -hmm. uh, understandably have that orientation, and that's very important. Mm -hmm. So you were restless uh, as a nurse. You, you, you sounds like you have passion around nursing, but... It, it seems like you, after being a critical care nurse that for a while, you said, you know, I'm really feeling like I'm called to do 
administration, right? Is that what you're saying? I don't know if it was, uh, I didn't go into um, the next iteration thinking I want to be the president of a company. I wanted a broader interaction. The one thing I knew all along though, um, unlike some people, I didn't want to go back and start a whole new industry. I've always had a passion for healthcare. Mm -hmm. And there's a pragmatic side, obviously, of someone who um, went to nursing school that I wanted to build and not start over. You know, I, at that age, I had to put myself through my master's and, um, you know, got my share of student loans and all that. But, you know, I wanted to do something with my degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought about, should I go insurance? Should I do this or that? But my, I've always just loved hospitals mm-hmm. and the inpatient and provider side. Yeah, I mean, but the I would say from your experience there, the message for women would be that if you're not if you're doing something that doesn't completely uh, fill you, make you feel whole and driven and passionate, then look around. Maybe there's something else in your area that you could go to or another industry, but stay open to what you're passionate about. Absolutely, and I think I just believe you're personally responsible for your career. Mm-hmm. You know, in any uh, industry, and I can remember at times, people complain about what, you know, some aspect of their job, no job is perfect. But if you're going to complain a lot, I think the onus is on you to do something about it. Yes. It versus blame your surroundings or right, et cetera. Right. Take action and uh, make things happen. It can be done. Right. Yes. You and your husband, Tom, had decided to have children later in your life, uh, statistically speaking, for women. Uh, You had your twin boys at 43 years old. And talk about the decision to have children later. What went into that? Uh, You were established in your career by then. Um, I see, you know, mostly we see women having kids starting in their 20s and then their 30s. But uh, talk about having kids later later in your life? I would just say better late than never. <laughs> um, and I was just so career focused. I was very driven and it did not, it just didn't occur to me that I should ideally maybe from a health or risk have done that earlier. I also, uh, you know, I was married at 22. I was married for seven years and it did not work. So then I was on my own for about 10 years. So I was never one who really entertained having and adopting or raising children deliberately on my own. I always felt like a partnership was better. So some of it was just my circumstance. Mm -hmm. I didn't remarry again until I was 39. And, you know, obviously the clock had been ticking. I do think a mistake women make, and, and this is probably being in a clinical business, if you wait too long, it's very hard and the percentages go down dramatically. So for fertility. Um, yes. And I, I had to go through multiple rounds of infertility. Mm-hmm. It was worth it to me, but it was extraordinarily difficult. Yeah. I, um, yeah. I wouldn't trade our twins for the world. And I think the other challenge, uh, my husband's a little older than I am, of being an older parent from a responsibility you really want to see your children raised. Um, and so our, you know, probably fervent prayer had been to to 
do our um, parenting responsibility and raise these children. It's not something I take lightly. So they've just turned 22. I think their character is largely formed. And I think most older parents, I don't know if you're ever done as a parent, but you breathe a sigh of relief that their personhood is formed, their values. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I have one graduating this year and one next year because one took a gap year. Um, so that's inspirational to me and it was certainly worth it. Also for me, I was not very patient early in my career. I think you learn a lot of things in life and I'm a better parent probably as an older parent. Um, because I had infinitely more patience by the time mm -hmm. I had my children. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, even though, you know, I look at my, I had my first child, I have two. I had my first child at 27. Um, you know, would I have been a better, different parent, you know, at, in my 40s? And I may have been because I was, I don't know, 27. I don't think you have the the knowledge about yourself and the world that, that you have when you're in your 40s. So I can see being that being good. And you're right. You you know, when you look at your kids, you think, okay, mine are now 34 and 28. And it's mm -hmm. like, okay, they're loving. Uh, they're productive. They're good. They're good people. And they would like me to stop being a parent. I'll just say that. <laughs> uh, back off mom kind of thing. But, uh, you know, you, you never stop worrying about them. Very true. Yeah. Um, you have had, I think the most fascinating thing about your career for me as I, as I researched you, uh, is, um, is the crises you have been through in the last couple of years. And I want to talk about each of those individually. Um, and I'm going to bring them up to you and just talk, you know, kind of set it up and then you tell me what you did, what happened, how you, how you handled it. Because this is really important for leaders, men or women leaders, that how do you, when things get tough, when things happen out of the blue, how do we respond? What kind of leader are you? How do you manage? How do you direct? How do you support? You know, um, Diane Ewing, who works with you, and remind me of her position at Premier. Diane is our government uh, relations uh, executive. Okay. And she also is uh, serves as, I would say, a chief of staff for me and does a lot of my um, external speech writing. And mm -hmm. that. she has a very interesting background, and it's a nice combination. Yeah. Good. She is. She's a big fan of yours. Uh, she mm -hmm. says here, uh, Mary is the organization's first female CEO. Mary has handled one crisis after another and handled things with communication uh, through toughness and resilience and delivering tough messages. Mary is a mission-driven leader guided by a strong set of values. She's not only broken the glass ceiling, but she's shattered it. She has been a leader in advancing diversity and inclusion for many years and is highly respected as a role model. And just the leadership here, just caring deeply about your patients, your staff, um, just uh, being a uh, being guided by the board of trustees, being, you know, supportive and cooperative and collaborative with the board. Uh, during the pandemic, Mary has demonstrated and modeled resilience, creativity, determination at the highest level. So high praise. Oh, could we just stop there? <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
And that's it for today. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, uh, I think she's, um, I don't know. That's very kind of her. I, I just would like to say, Susan, we have been through a lot. And you commented at the beginning of this about the history of the Valley. And I think there's a couple key ingredients to all of these crises. One is we have a local board and um, Miami Valley in Dayton is the flagship of our system. And the community, I believe has very high expectations because of the long history and appropriately so, but our local board and myself, because of our mission, because it, we're a safety net hospital, we believe, we think of the, val the Valley as a community asset. So anytime there's a community crisis, we need to be engaged. Mm -hmm. And we consider that part of our mission. And I think we demonstrated that through our people, whether it was the tornadoes going out in the community. Um, we had employees who volunteered on their own on, to do things like food distribution, water, um, we don't. We donated to employees who were devastated by the hurricane. We have an employee catastrophic fund. Mm -hmm. So we we just believe you need to pull together, and I think the the value of an asset like the Valley, which is a level one trauma, which is I think the 18th largest hospital in the country, you see in a crisis the depth and breadth of experience in an organization like that. And people rise to the occasion. Um, most recently, we've all been through COVID. And I've got to tell you, those are nice things to say about me, but who really gets it done are the people on the front lines. Mm -hmm. And if you've had the experience um, meeting and engaging with clinicians, I would say in this industry, they're at their best in a crisis. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like an army. They just, this is what they do. This is what they're training, whether it's disaster and they step up and they show up. Mm -hmm. And if you try to praise people too much, like recognition is obviously important. I can tell you nine times out of 10, when I talk to people, they'll say, I was just doing my job. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. And I think what you're saying there is Miami Valley with the history over 120 years old, probably closing in on 130 years old hospital, you know, that depth of experience and just how established it is helps in a crisis like this. Plus the Dayton community, these are, I'm not saying other communities aren't like this, but if there's a crisis, people step up and they, they, you know, they get it done and they're like, hey, what do, what, what do you need from me? I'll do this. I'll do that. I've seen it there over and over. And I think one of the uh, additional things in that is uh, because sometimes healthcare's, you know, criticized for being slow to change because we always have to lead with safety. But in a crisis, it's really interesting to watch how quickly you can make tough decisions and how nimble you can be. Yes. Yeah, when you're put to the test, and that's that's what I want. Where I want to go on this, um, it's it's right now. It is January 2021, and we are in the middle of a pandemic from the virus COVID-19, and we're closing in on a year here. I mean, it really started all coming down, kind of 
beginning of March, middle of March. And when it was discovered that this virus was in our country and people were getting it, and for hospitals and healthcare providers, it became a crisis. And you and the organization were taxed with making sure that you were working with local health organizations, you were working with the state, you were doing testing, getting the proper equipment, PPE. And it was, it was really for hospitals an incredible undertaking. I mean, I saw the, the tents out in the parking lots. I mean, very, very uncertain time. So I'd like to hear about what happened there. You know, how did you deal with this as a leader in March of 2020 when you realized that this thing was big and it was coming and some things needed to change and, and change very fast? Again, back to my comment, when you've trained in disasters and then you have, you know, most healthcare systems have extensive disaster planning in place. And so you pull that trigger. In our case, we immediately set up an incident command center. What was unique? My understanding is I think we were one of the first to do a completely virtual, which mm-hmm. actually made sense with COVID because of the risk. So uh, you have to get organized very quickly. Uh, what was interesting and has been about COVID is we had tremendous collaboration with what were formerly competitors. Uh, The state association was very involved. And um, likewise, we had the Department of Defense in here. And we immediately toured facilities and said, you know, as the numbers grow, what can we convert? Uh, Dayton is a manufacturing town. And when we started to run short on PPE or anticipated, we went to local businesses and partnered with them. Hmm. And they developed a prototype of a gown, which meant all regulatory standards. So you have to innovate. Yes. Uh, I guess baseline, I would say in a crisis, one of my biggest learnings would be you can't sit around and wait for the government to solve your problems. Right. You have to get in there and be have a bias towards action. Mm-hmm. One other quick example, and it came through my connection with the University of Dayton being on the board, uh, the president there called me and offered their parking lot at their um, uh, football field. And we set up one of the first drive-through testing centers in the country, which, wow. you know, testing is so critical in getting your arms around this. Yes. So I'd say the lessons of a bias towards action, partnering, you don't have time to reinvent things, and um, just leveraging the expertise of your clinical staff. Sure. Just not not knowing exactly what to do. And I always think sometimes in a leadership situation, it's like being expected to throw darts at a dartboard with a blindfold on and hit the bullseye, right? But you don't have all the information that you really need to make a decision, but you have to be decisive. You have to say, I've got enough information to say, here's where we're going to go. And you cannot rely on the government. You have to approach it as a leader in a business situation. And as Debbie Hayes said at Christ Hospital, I mean, things were changing not only daily, but hourly. And in the healthcare system, you know, like HIPAA, when it came in, it took months and months to get that implemented. This had to happen fast. And I mean, I just, it just managing through a crisis like that had to be pretty incredible experience. 
it's it was it's not one I want all all the time every day it's gone on a little long but I think you're alluding to real-time decisions and what are the structures and communication to do that mm-hmm. and thank goodness we're in a digital I think we crossed the digital divide in a week mm-hmm. whether it was telehealth visits I think we went up something like two thousand percent yes I so, saw that once um, yep the other thing that we talk about internally, and I'm sure other leaders, is this kind of cliche, but it's true. Uh, don't let, what is it, perfect be the enemy of good. Yes. Jim Jim Collins, good to great. Yeah. Yes. So we would say that, and of course, I think the other word that everyone incorporated was pivot, to Debbie's point. Yes. Pivot, pivot, pivot. pivot. Move, yeah. Um. Well, congratulations on getting through it. We're not through it yet. Uh, the, the cases continue to increase, and uh, the vaccines are coming in not soon enough, but we're getting there, and we will get yes. out of this, and we will we come will. through. Yes. We have to. Yeah, we have to, and we will. Um, that, that's the only other thing I would add. People say, well, what are you going to – how do you – address it i think you just have to keep moving forward yes really what choice do you have what choice do you have you have to keep moving (laughs) i well that's that's how we face things as women frankly i think that and and debbie saw this in the hospital i don't know if you saw this but i'll mention it and that is that when when you've got 30 people around a table, you're dealing with a crisis, you really see who the leaders are and who the ones that are too scared to death to do things. And sometimes the women come in as the biggest leaders. Would you, was that? I agree. I think in any crisis, you know, there's people, even leaders, who are very good when it's the status quo. Mm Mm-hmm. And I saw firsthand people who have a tendency, perhaps well-intended, to wring their hands, and then there's the group that are solution-oriented, and that's who you need to align with. But I agree completely, and sometimes it surprises you. Um, I do think, and I know this is a little bit of a stereotype, women are particularly good at uh, multitasking. I think there's data and so that's required, and they just kind of roll up their sleeves and go to work. Right. Yeah. Uh, many men, too. But it was interesting. Um, I, I agree with that statement wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see who's going to come through, who's going to go to fear versus taking action despite the fear, take the risk. We've got to do this, get it done. I, I think it's really interesting who you see as leaders in a crisis like that. Yeah. Um, let's go on to another crisis that happened in Dayton, um, which was a Saturday night in the summer of August of 2019 in the Oregon district of Dayton, which is on Fifth Street, and it was a very popular place. When I was a college student at Wright State University, we were often in the Oregon district, sometimes on the weekends or during the week. Great place to, to go to a bar or restaurant. At 1 a.m. on August 5th, 2019 in Dayton, um, a gunman uh, came into a bar in the Oregon district and there was a mass shooting. Nine people were killed. 27 people were injured. And I'd like to hear you talk about this and, and what Premier did in this situation. How did you address it? What happened? When did you learn about it? 
and then we'll talk about some of the things that happened afterward. I learned about it when the first casualties um, started showing up in the emergency room, and we had never been through anything like this. And it's interesting, I, I think in some of our minds, you always think that's in another city. Yeah. So I, your world changes completely when that happens, no matter what your role, because you do know then from firsthand experience, it could happen anywhere, anytime. And I think that has a lasting impact on um, sort of your perspective on life, on what's important. Um, again, people in a disaster, uh, the focus is always on uh, we're in, you know, we're in healthcare, right. on the patient, their families, on the safety of our staff. That's another consideration because there were a lot of unknowns. And I think I, what struck me the most was the interaction between EMS, the police, and our our teams. We got the vast majority of victims because of the level one. And um, fortunately, I, I can't speak to the emotional, but most of them physically, uh, you know, many of them survived. Um, it was, I think what you deal with in that is the trauma of that occurring. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a very hard time for the community, but again, they stepped up, whether it was support, rallies, a lot of the politicians came. I think you may know um, the president came yes. and uh, visited the, the patients. And, you know, when you're in a crisis like that, it really wasn't about politics. And we could talk, that's not the purpose of this, about the divide in the country from a political. But in a crisis, I saw people come together and we asked every patient, did they want the president and first lady to visit? And regardless of party, they wanted that opportunity. I think they wanted to have someone see what they had been through. Yeah. And it was important to their healing. Mm -hmm. I saw the photos online. Uh, we, I saw it on the nightly news. I mean, it was a big deal, um, of course, in this region, not only Dayton, but Cincinnati. And, uh, you know, Do and uh, President Trump and the First Lady came in. Uh, other politicians, Mike DeWine, the governor, uh, Rob Portman, Cincinnati senator, Nan Whaley. I mean, you had everybody there and just John uh, Houston, yeah. John Houston all coming together. And that's where our country unites, frankly, is when there is a crisis, we do come together. And I knew it was very emotional. Um, and there were protests, of course, because of gun violence and Trump's mm -hmm. position on guns. Um, but um, what did you learn about that? I mean, I, the, the police had, and, and the EMS, they were really lauded for their response to this. It was immediate. It was fast. Some people probably lived because they were so responsive. So talk about that. It, yes, it could have been by any assessment much worse. And I think when you try to visualize gunshots going off at night and most people uh, running in a way and police running towards yeah. That's that's a visual that says a lot about the police. Yeah. Uh, no thought twice about their right. own life. Right. Um, and likewise, I think with COVID, with caregivers, just getting in there, 
taking what precautions, but this is what they do. Mm -hmm. So these people are at a, uh, I don't know, a level I can't uh, applaud them enough. Um, I guess I learned to your point, people are at their best often, unfortunately, perhaps in a crisis and they put their differences aside. Um, I also saw from the president's visit, every group we had the police in, People really wanted to be, not in an inappropriate way, but respected and acknowledged. And that had tremendous meaning for them. Um, We could have said no to the president, depending on your politics. But I think the lesson is you have to focus on the people who have been harmed. Right. And what is best for them Mm -hmm. emotionally, physically, um, and how do you respect their wishes? Mm-hmm. And um, and that's what we did. And it was a huge orchestration. I have never in all my years been in a, you know, meeting a president. Yeah. Um, it was pro- uh, very memorable. The most fascinating was talking to the Secret Service because there's a lot of waiting when a president <laughs> comes. And they can tell you stories that uh, probably you would never hear. Yeah. So I think we learned a lot. It's not something you want to do every day because it's just a huge preparation yeah. with road closures. Mm. There's risks in anything, mm-hmm. but it is. Uh, I think I'm so glad for Dayton that we pulled it off without a mm-hmm. uh, another catastrophe. So right. Well, it was um, it was an awful thing that happened. It really rocked the area. It rocked Dayton, um, and. You know, certainly uh, everybody came together. Um, you know, keeping with the theme of of our podcast here, we talk about things that happen as female leaders that um, that maybe don't happen with male leaders. And I thought it was an interesting observation you had when President Trump came in. Um, and you know, you're the leader of this organization, right? You're the leader of the hospital organization, and yet, Trump seemed to go to one of your one of the people with the hospital, a tall uh, male, right? And he got shots of he and this tall male walking together in this crisis when he didn't. You're trying to kind of catch up to Trump and let him know you're the you're the top dog. <laughs> I'm the head the, guy. Yeah, here. You're the head guy. Uh, even though I think you're like me, you're. You're not only female, but you're not so tall, uh, <laughs> which is, hey, it is the way it is, right? But but Trump didn't, um, you know, he walked with the tall guy, right? I mean, talk about that. I haven't had that happen a lot. Uh, if I, I did, I wasn't aware. But this was very noticeable. And I think it sort of goes to implicit bias uh, where he, Trump came in, and I'm assuming he's briefed. Right. But his his natural comfort, it would appear, I don't think our executive did anything wrong, was to go towards the tall guy. Yeah. And um, so I had to sort of assert myself. Um, and it was, I haven't always had that happen because in many situations, people know what your role is and, you know, they sort of acknowledge it. It's kind of, Susan, like if you, as a woman leader, if you've ever been in a group and maybe someone doesn't know, and they talk to the guy in the room. A guy yes. talks to a guy. Um, it's happened to me uh, hundreds of times. Yeah, it doesn't give eye contact yes. to you. I think that's one of the, a, a huge mistake on the other person's part, not on mine. But it shows where we're not. No, it, it, it would, I, 
I work at redirecting that uh, eye contact. I'm sure you've learned techniques how to do that, just to remind them, you know, that you've got the you've got the position, you've got the authority. So, when you tried to assert yourself, how did you go about doing it? Well, I'm pretty assertive, as you might imagine. <laughs> yes, I would just walk up and wet and get on the either the other side or in between. I yeah. just could kind of elbow your way in there to yes, the tall guys. Yes, yes. <laughs> But, so, uh, you know, assert, but not be overly aggressive. Sure. And it actually, he got it. I, I don't mean to be any disrespect for the office, but he, he got it and started and started paying, I think, appropriate attention. Good, good. Well, I want to, um, I have a couple of other questions for you, but I do want to talk about, uh, and Crank, I, I just want to stop and just say congratulations on getting through that the hospital and the uh, organization, um, you know, was, you know, did what they needed to do. You were there, you got most of the victims and, and healed. And uh, that's, it's uh, an unimaginable crisis. Well, Um, we appreciate that. And I say we, because you never get through. If you think you're the one doing it all in a crisis, you're in uh, you're not understanding what's going on. No, you have a team. Required. You have, uh, yeah. you know, huge staff. We have staff. incredible right. people, and I'm, I'm just so very proud of them. You do, yes, indeed. Uh, I'm going a bit out of uh, sequence in terms of when these things happen, but you know, I think I talked about the more, the biggest crises. But you did have a uh, Dayton had a series of tornadoes that came through in May of 2019 around Memorial Day which is the same year as the shootings. And these were big tornadoes, F3s, F4s, maybe 140 mile an hour winds, a lot of damage. Um, talk about that crisis briefly, if you would, and just talk about how, how the hospital was was part of that. Well, I think what was unique to that, uh, similar perhaps to COVID in a different way, a lot of our staff, when we're one of the largest employers, were affected. So you're dealing with community members, uh, but also it was very um, emotionally uh, upsetting, understandably, to staff who maybe lost their whole house. Mm, So um, I admire, and and again, I think we have a history of that. We asked our uh, foundation leaders to step up, figure out criteria with human resources on how to award people either cash through the Employee Catastrophic Fund, or um, how could we give them time off? How could we connect them? You know, that's a sort of a bureaucratic nightmare to get, um, whether it's FEMA dollars. So you have to, uh, again, be nimble, maybe go outside your comfort zone. Um, And then just the sheer volume in a crisis of volunteers to distribute clothing, food, water, um, that really was the whole community. Mm. Um, and if I think in any of these things, if you take a drive and saw the devastation, the picture is worth more than, you know, I can describe verbally. Right. And it's taken several years. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, for myself personally and for this community, it, it's kind of been a very unique. I didn't anticipate this when I started. None of us do. But, you know, you just get up from one crisis and here comes another. So you sort of start looking over your shoulder. 
Um, but um, I don't. I can't think of any group of people, uh, having been through many, that I'd rather be with. And I think you gain. You don't wish a, a crisis on this community, but you gain a confidence that we're, you know, we're very capable of pulling together. Yep. You're resilient. resilient. Great you let word. it. Yes, you let it. And uh, you dealt with what you had to deal with as it came up. I mean, between the, the shootings, COVID and the tornado, I mean, in the last couple of years, you know, I can see that you're probably getting a fight or flight kind of a. <laughs> Uh, kind of situation where you're like, okay, what what's going to happen next? You know, so uh, congratulations for being here and getting through it, having great leadership uh, uh, skills. Let me um, let me wrap up here by asking you a question um, about diversity, racial diversity, gender diversity. You know how it's played out at the at Premier, as well as. What advice, it's sort of a two-part question, what advice would you give to a young woman who might be coming in to her career in her 20s about how, how to do it, how to be successful, how to gain confidence? How would, you, how would you advise a woman today? I think you have to be choosy as an individual where you go and align yourself. So I was very choosy about coming out here. I didn't have Dayton connections, but I had heard a lot about uh, the gentleman who became my mentor, Rush Jordan, um, that he was a great advocate for giving young people a lot of responsibility. And so I had been many places interviewing because I had been in healthcare. So I, to just go to a hospital, I'd been in many hospitals. I was looking in my mind's eye for something special. And I knew the minute I came through the interviews here that I had found that. Mm. Some of it's hard to describe. Uh, One thing that for me resonated because I had had a lot of experience as a nurse, even though I didn't know exactly what type of um, position I would eventually end up with, I knew I needed to get other experiences. And so many places I interviewed said, oh, you've got all this great nursing. We'll make you the head of nursing eventually. Um, When I interviewed with Rush Jordan, he was the only person who said to me, you've had great nursing experience, but we need to round you out as an executive. Mm. So you need to do some other things. And I knew right then I found what I've been looking for. That and the... um, caliber and integrity of the organization, Mm -hmm. I think you have to do your homework. And from a diversity, um, look around. I mean, if you want to be trailblazing, that I guess that's a choice. But I went and interviewed in Texas. And, you know, being from California and a little more, I suppose, liberal politics from equity, you know, when someone called me little lady, I I kind of knew I was going to be in trouble at every turn. It wasn't a match. You could so feel the culture is, wasn't going to yeah, match. Yeah. And I think that's it. You have to find what's a match for you in your dreams. Right. And uh, I saw many of my classmates who couldn't move because they had family or spouse. I at that time was single. And when I say leverage, why not? make the move. I mm-hmm. wasn't encumbered by those obligations. Right. So it was, it gave me tremendous mm-hmm. opportunity. And then I talked to many uh, 
professors. And I said, what do you recommend? And it's interesting. Healthcare is a very small world. And several mm-hmm. people recommended Miami Valley. I thought it was in Florida. It's in Dayton. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, I think you have to do your homework, be choosy, and uh, don't give up if you don't find it first around. Don't don't settle. Right. Don't that would settle. Be, uh, from a diversity, I would tell you Premier is the best practice. And I actually didn't know that for many years. It's just such a part of the culture. And I credit our board, which is very diverse. Mm-hmm. And one of my mentors, Tom Breitenbach, who was sort of on to the, the values of diversity. We, we had a diversity committee 25 years ago. My executive staff is 66% women. Mm. Um, we, are, we define diversity. We measure it. Um, we've gone to the point of with suppliers, if they can't get minority um minorities involved, we will teach them. Mm. So it's just a a part of our DNA. It's a focus. Yeah. It matters. Mm -hmm. Sure. And look at all the great talent you get. Right. From a diversity of opinion, you know, background. Right. Now, do we all have things to do and learn? Sure. You're never done. Right. But, um, you know, we have a lot of challenges in healthcare. We're Mm -hmm. not best in everything, but I do think we're truly a best practice in diversity and that's not me. I I got lucky a little bit in that, yeah. in joining a culture that valued that early, early on. Right. Yes, I can see that. Well, Mary, it's been great getting to know you and uh, fascinated by your career and just admire how resilient you are getting through these crises and coming out and just saying, hey, I hope we don't have another one, and this one's gone on kind of long, you've done it. And uh, congratulations. I'm really, I mean, gosh, it's amazing. Well, thank you. And I um, just appreciate the opportunity to to share our experience. And, uh, you know, life's a journey, so we'll keep keep moving and learning. Good. You're a great leader, and I'm honored to have you as a guest. Thanks again for joining me. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leading She. Please check out many other Leading She episodes, which are wonderful. We discuss challenges these accomplished women have overcome in their careers. Please subscribe to this podcast and rate it and review it. Follow Leading She on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And visit our website, leadingshe.com, where we have ideas and wisdom for women leaders.